Section 7 of Angelica by Elizabeth Sansay Holding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. Chapter 7 1. Sharp at ten o'clock the next morning, Angelica knocked at Polly's door. Her eyes were dancing, she was filled with an exhilarating sense of mischief, for she had been having breakfast with the doctor, and a regular rowdy breakfast it had been the old delightful badinage of the street and factory. When she had come down, the dining-room was deserted, and she had lingered about waiting for any who might come. Presently in had come the dapper little doctor. His face had lighted up marvellously when he saw her there alone, and he told her archly that she was welcome as the flowers in the spring. "'That's all right,' Angelica had retorted belligerently. "'Never you mind about me.' And so the conversation had proceeded, flowery compliments on his side, and a continuous show of resentment on hers, all as it should be. "'You're a regular old devil,' she had told him. "'You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' "'You're a devil yourself,' he had answered. "'A young devil and a dangerous one. "'You could teach me a trick or two, I dare say.' Then she had thrown a piece of bread at him, and he had sprung up and smothered her in a napkin, almost upsetting her chair backward, and she had given his necktie a terrific pull. She did so like this sort of thing.' She had a familiar and delightful feeling now toward Polly, such as she had so often felt toward teachers at school and foremen in factories, that she had something up her sleeve that she was slyly outraging authority. "'Come in,' said Polly. She was still in bed, her breakfast untouched on a tray beside her. She looked stale, broken, weary in body and spirit, miserably inferior to the sparkling girl who stood waiting for her orders. "'Good morning. Sit down,' she said politely enough. She could say nothing further. Weary from a sleepless night, sick with grief and longing, lonely as a traveller stranded on a desolate shore, it seemed to her impossible to communicate with any one about her. She could think of no words that they would comprehend, no answer from them that would give her any possible solace. She seemed to Angelica a sallow, listless woman of forty, who persisted very selfishly in staring out of the window and preserving a tedious silence. She had no faintest idea of that anguish of a fine and strong soul. "'Would you mind?' said Polly suddenly. "'There's a little leather book in my desk and a fountain pen. I'd like to write a little.' Angelica jumped up and brought them to her with alacrity. She felt very obliging this morning. "'Anything else I can do?' she asked cheerfully. "'No, thanks. It's my diary. It's just seven weeks ago that my child died.' She spoke quietly, but her face had assumed an odd, drawn look. Oh, Lord, thought Angelica, now I suppose there'll be a scene, and me feeling so happy. But there was no scene, not even a tear. Polly had long ago got past that consolation. She put down her little book. Will you go and ask Mrs. Russell, please, when she wants to use the car? I think I'll go out this afternoon. Angelica sped off, glad to be released from this terrible ennui, and knocked upon Mrs. Russell's door. She found her engaged in a surprising occupation. She was carefully rouging her cheeks, that tough, weather-beaten brown skin. Her hair was carefully dressed, and she wore a handsome embroidered white linen frock. She was tall and straight, with good shoulders and a fine, free play of limb. From the back, she wasn't bad. She looked like a muscular and athletic young woman, until she turned and one saw her face. With the rouge and the blackened eyebrows, it had an indescribably repulsive look of dissipation. It was as if a man had rouged and bedecked himself. "'Well,' she said, "'how do I look?' "'All right,' said Angelica dubiously. "'Tell me frankly if there's the least thing. "'I must be very nice today. 
were giving a lunch to a young Englishwoman, a tennis champion, and I'm on the reception committee. Do I really look nice? Yes, said Angelica, in a still more doubtful tone. You don't think so, cried Mrs. Russell. I can see that. But, my dear, I don't suppose a woman of my age can ever look very nice. However, the glance she gave to her reflection in the mirror was quite a complacent one. She began covering her face with pink powder while she talked, and grimacing as she carefully avoided the blackened eyebrows. How did you get on with Mrs. Geraldine, she asked. All right, she's not so bad, said Angelica, only sort of dopey. Dopey? What's that? Angelica flushed. Oh, like people that take dope, morphine and opium and all that. But my dear girl, Polly doesn't. I know. I only said she acted like people that do. It's just a word people use about anyone that's quiet and... Mrs. Geraldine's very reserved, quite different from me. I'm obliged to say everything that comes into my head, but I dare say her life has made her like that. Why has it? What kind of life has she had? asked Angelica with naked curiosity. My dear, you see, she was married before to a perfectly dreadful sort of man. He drank, and I don't know what else, absolutely no good at all. You see, she used to be a concert singer when she was young. It's very interesting to hear her tell about her days in Germany, when she studied there. And then she came back to New York and got an engagement to sing in one of the first-class restaurants. She really comes from a nice family, Ohio people. Not in society at all, but nice. They weren't all that well off, so I suppose they were glad to have her earning her own living. Anyway, they were away off in Ohio, so they couldn't have stopped her very well, could they? No, said Angelica, astounded at the very idea of melancholy Mrs. Geraldine singing in a restaurant. She must have been quite a pretty girl, Mrs. Russell went on. I've seen pictures of her. She says she had the most distressing experiences with men, following her and so on. She says she was really just about to give up the restaurant singing when one night this tremendously handsome man was waiting for her when she came out. She says he was so different from the usual sort, so gentlemanly and so on, and he'd been so impressed with her. My dear, have I too much powder on? Yes, on your forehead. Who was this feller, the handsome one? Mrs. Russell stared at her in perplexity. Then she suddenly recollected the subject of their talk. Oh, yes, of course. He told her afterward that he was so much impressed with her refinement and distinction. I suppose she did look well, standing up on the platform in a white dress. And her voice is charming. He walked home with her that night, and they were married three weeks later. Of course, as she says, she didn't really know him at all. And he turned out to be perfectly dreadful. She went through the greatest misery with him. He was killed in an accident. He was in a taxi with some chorus girl. I don't really know much about him. She doesn't like to talk about him. But I've seen a picture of him. He was handsome. But coarse, I think. He was quite successful in his business, whatever it was, but he spent all he made, and only left her a tiny little income. She made it do, though. She lived so quietly. Angelica was delighted to get all this information. She leaned against the doorway in one of her careless, beautiful, gamine attitudes, her dark eyes on Mrs. Russell's face with an attention that pleased the veteran gossip. She's a charming woman. Still, I was amazed at Vincent, of all people. She's so much older than he, years, and she shows it. Of course, when they were first married three years ago, she was quite different, much nicer looking. Poor soul. She really had a wretched time with Vincent. He's frightfully trying. I really think she's been wonderfully patient with him. I'll never forget the day he came into my room and told me he was married. I couldn't believe it. He's so fickle and erratic. I never expected him to settle down. 
I don't suppose he really has. And when I saw her, simply a plainly dressed woman of thirty-five, of course she has a certain charm about her. She's restful. I like being with her. But not all the time. I can't understand why she clings to me so. She's so self-reliant. How indeed was Mrs. Russell to understand all this, she with her thistle-down heart, her life of infantile amusement-seeking, to understand the solitude of this woman from a small town, accustomed to the friendly faces of neighbours, of people who had known her all her life and were interested in all that concerned her, this woman who had twice given her life with simplicity and generosity, to have it twice despised, a wife without a husband, a mother bereft of her child. Polly hadn't a soul near her who took the least interest in her, no one to talk to. That was what made her so silent. She didn't, she couldn't utter flippancies. She longed for one of her own good, earnest, kindly, small-town women, who would wish to listen and know how to console. And in default of this, then she must have Mrs. Russell, who could at least talk about her lost child. She could say to her, Do you remember this day and that day? This that he said and how he looked? She had loved her child with a passion tiresome to all those about her. She had been absorbed in him. She had seen in this little boy not alone her only child, but her only friend, a fellow countryman in a hostile land. And now he was gone. She's charming, Mrs. Russell repeated, but I should never have picked her out for Vincent. She's not the sort of woman to hold him. He's so odd, you know. He always used to say that he'd never marry, and that he was looking for the perfect woman whatever he fancied a perfect woman was. I don't know what it was he saw in Polly. She's not beautiful or fascinating as far as I can see. Of course, there's her voice. It's lovely, but still. He met her at some sort of tea, he told me, and he said that he was enchanted by the sight of her, sitting there in her plain dark blue shirt with her hands folded, so quiet and clever, you know, in comparison with all the other women. I must admit I was disappointed. She paused for a few minutes to rub her big square nails with pink paste. When she began to talk again, she had unaccountably changed her point of view. Instead of her bland contempt for Polly, she had somehow, within her queer soul, developed a great indignation against her son. He has behaved abominably, she said with a frown. I can't understand him. For days at a time he doesn't speak to her, doesn't even see her. And all for nothing. He took her up in a caprice, and he's dropped her in another caprice. Do you know, my dear, all the time their child was so ill he wouldn't see it? He said he could do nothing to help it, and he couldn't bear to look at suffering. And at last, when it died, the thing became so scandalous that Eddie had to go and actually force him to come into its room. So he came sauntering in, and what do you think he said? Thank God I really hadn't had time to grow attached to it yet. That was pretty bad, said Angelica. She was more curious than shocked. She was eager to hear more about this atrocious Vincent. And now, went on Mrs. Russell, whenever the poor soul begins to practice, he comes stamping out of his room and shouts down the stairs, Stop! Stop! For God's sake, stop! He must be pretty selfish. Selfish, that's not the word. He squeezes everyone dry. He bothered me a while ago until I sold one of my rings to get money for him and as soon as I'd handed him the money, he walked out of the room without even saying thank you. And when I tried to speak to him, he didn't even stop. Just called back to me. I'm not in the mood for your conversation today. I couldn't endure it. He's a devil. A devil, thought Angelica. I wish I could get at him. I bet I could handle him. I'd like to see him anyway. I'd devil him. 
and maybe if he had a wife with more fight in her, more spirit, he'd be different. He'd be different to me, her secret heart cried. No man could ever neglect or hurt me. No man could ever really win me. I shall be loved, adored, obeyed, but I shall not give much. I am Angelica, the beautiful, the proud, the free. She was very ready to hear more, but that was not meant to be. The aggrieved voice of Corton, the chauffeur, was heard in the hall. Now then, do you want to be late, he called. That reminded Angelica of her errand. Oh, Mrs. Geraldine said to ask you when did you want to use the car. She thought she'd go out. Mrs. Russell stared at her in distress. Oh, psh, I never imagined she'd want it. Tell her, please, I'll send Corton back with it in an hour. I don't think, said Cortland. She better not hold her breath waiting. Even Angelica was aware that this was not the proper way for a chauffeur to address his lady. She was surprised that he wasn't rebuked. She looked at him with an indignant glance, which he returned with one of the greatest scorn. Wait in the car, Cortland, was all that Mrs. Russell said. I'll be down directly. He's a nice boy, she told Angelica after he had gone. I think a great deal of him. I'm sorry for him. He's very bright and intelligent. But he hasn't had any opportunities. He's mighty fresh, said Angelica. You mean disrespectful? I know it, but it seems to me that in this country, you know, a republic, we should expect that sort of thing. We're all more or less equals, I suppose, aren't we? Angelica said yes, but she didn't think so. And she knew that Mrs. Russell didn't think so. A game of exploitation, simply but in a country where everyone had the pleasing possibility of becoming one of the exploiters. Angelica went back to Polly with the message. She says she'll send the car back in an hour. Then I think I'll get up and dress, said Polly. We'll run into the city for lunch. Do you know? I feel better. I think you're doing me good. She really believed it. It seemed to her that the fierce and careless vitality of this girl charged all the atmosphere, penetrated and invigorated even her jaded and sorrowful heart. It was not the sort of vitality that fatigues and irritates, like the ceaseless activities of a little child. Angelica was quiet for the most part. She didn't speak much. She sat quietly in her chair, with the sort of cool steadiness that one notices in cats. When you spoke to her, it required no effort for her to attend, to concentrate her thought on you. At once her dark face was alert, her ready mind in action. With Polly, although she wasn't aware of it, her manner was exactly what was needed. She was generally quite indifferent, thinking her own thoughts, absorbed in her own affairs. But she was instantly willing to perform any service, or to talk, or to listen. Mr. Eddy spoke to me about you, Polly went on. I have a very high opinion of his judgment, and he seems to think you are just the person for me. Angelica was delighted. Well, she said in her pitifully ungracious way, it's kind of hard not knowing your ways or anything, but I guess I'll be useful. Polly smiled. Help me to get ready, won't you? I haven't been out for such a long time, and the doctor seems to think I should. This doctor, is it? Her husband? Oh, no, he's not exactly a doctor. He invented a patent medicine called Dr. Russell's Old Time Rejuvenator. That's why they call him doctor. I see, but those things are mostly fakes, aren't they? Polly didn't answer. Angelica enjoyed helping her to dress. She liked to open bureau drawers and wardrobes and see the well-ordered and dainty things all faintly fragrant. She liked fetching the silk stockings, the fine little handkerchiefs, the gloves, all the accessories of a woman of excellent taste and a decent income. Very plain Polly's things were, but with a most refined and fastidious plainness. Angelica, seeing and handling them, gained a quite new idea of a lady's requirements. 2. And there we sat, she told her mother later, 
all the morning like a couple of fools waiting for the car. It got to be lunchtime and still it hadn't showed up. I couldn't help feeling sorry for her, waiting there with her hat on and all. I guess she's decided to keep her automobile for herself today, I said. It isn't hers, she said. It's Mr. Eddie's for us both to use. He's a generous feller, I think. The excursion was given up. They had lunch downstairs together, and in the afternoon they went out for a little walk. A tiresome walk for them both. Polly said scarcely a word. Angelica believed her to be angry, and at five o'clock, when at length the motor came back, with Mrs. Russell in it, she looked forward to a row. She received another lesson, for Polly said nothing. She had tea in the library with her mother-in-law, and she was as agreeable and polite as if nothing at all had occurred to vex her. At first this conduct appeared to Angelica cowardly and shockingly hypocritical. But as she watched Polly, she changed her opinion. No, it wasn't hypocrisy. She didn't pretend to be pleased and friendly. Her attitude to Mrs. Russell said, in effect, Do as you please. You can't annoy me. I remain absolutely undisturbed. And as Angelica observed them, first to see how tea was to be drunk and later to ponder, a new idea struggled to life in her mind. It began to dawn upon her that there were grades among ladies and varieties. Mrs. Russell was a lady, and Mrs. Geraldine was a lady, but they were of quite different sorts, and Polly's sort was the better. So there wasn't simply a set of rules to follow or a definite standard to attain. There wasn't even one absolutely correct manner. How was one to learn? How was one to imitate? My God, she reflected, there's more to this than I thought. End of section 7